both an art and a science, valuations are complex things and their impact is enormous, making the difference between generational wealth creation and a comfortable retirement. At Bizval, we know how tough it is to grow and run a business, which is exactly why we've made valuations simpler. Whether you are using our online tool Bizval Live or reaching out to us for a concierge offering where we spend more time on your numbers and your business and give you detailed feedback, you can be sure that the same techniques being used by professional investors are also being used by us. And with Bizval Bootcamp, we will prepare you for those discussions with investors. Welcome to the Bizval podcast. It's really good to have you here. And today, my guest is a man who I think is quite a feature of the local Twitter or X scene, if I can call it that. Uh, he's probably on LinkedIn, although I don't spend too much time on LinkedIn myself, but I'm sure he's there as well. And uh, a surname that if you know anything about the marketing industry in South Africa, you'll probably recognize that too. So that is Mike Abel of MNC Saatchi Abel. And Mike, it's really good to have you on the Bizval podcast, uh, especially in the context of you know, uh, just helping South African entrepreneurs, giving some advice to entrepreneurs around the world. Actually, we know how hard operating conditions are in this country. And, you know, the idea is not to touch on too much of that today, but I am here on my backup microphone uh, because <laughs> I don't have electricity. So I'm dodging my cats who love all of the uh, additional wires that are now uh, hanging around. So if there's any funny noises on this podcast, it might be me getting wiped out by a feline. Uh, Mike, I don't know if there'll be any funny noises on your end, but if they are, you'll have to tell us uh, what happened. Well, um, I've just returned from the Galapagos Islands, so hopefully I haven't got any iguanas or blue-footed boobies stuck in my briefcase. Otherwise, I don't expect too many interruptions, but great to be on your podcast, Ghost, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you here. I'm glad we could get this in. So I guess where I want to start is, you know, you have a really interesting history in the sort of marketing arena, having built a business that has your name on the door. And not every founder does that in terms of building a business that has their name on the door and then managing to actually do some transactions with it. You know, the number one lesson is always build independence from the owner, almost made more difficult by having the name on the door, isn't it? So I'm very keen to get a better understanding from you of just that story behind you know, MNC, Saatchi, Abel, what happened? How did it become? All those names together, I suppose. It'll be great to get that background. Perfect. So I think the first thing to state is that my name on the door isn't actually a vanity at all, but more of a direction board. And I'll unpack that. So I have been in a marketing and advertising communications industry for around 35 years. I started my first ad agency when I was very young during apartheid operating out of the townships in Nelson Mandela Bay, Abeja, and it was advertising on the back window of black taxis. So I had a partnership in those days with Uncredo Black Taxi Association and I'd operate out of Zwede, Kwasakele, New Brighton, Motherwell, to name a few. And then I spent many years, uh, I started off at the DDB, the White House, which was a very iconic agency at the time. It was a breakaway from Ogilvy. And then I spent many, many years at Ogilvy, about 15 years. I was there from age 25 to 41. And so in uh, working with and co-leading the Ogilvy Group on the Africa continent, I guess I became an established name uh, in advertising specifically. And then I went to go and run the MNC Saatchi Group in Australia as their group CEO. And then they asked me to start MNC Saatchi in South Africa. They didn't expect me to start it myself. They asked me to start it remotely. But when I discussed it with my wife, she took a running dive through that window of opportunity to come home and be with her sisters and her parents and her family. And uh, 
I thought about MNC Saatchi in South Africa and they had actually opened the agency 10 years before I came and opened MNC Saatchi Able. And they weren't satisfied with the growth of the agency at the time and they pulled their investment. It was around, uh, in, I mean, not unfair in any way to the owners or the founders in South Africa of MNC Saatchi at the time, but I think it coincided with the dot bomb and, uh, you know, there was a lot of disinvestment happening around the world, I guess, at the time. So they had been in South Africa 10 years before I opened MNC Saatchi Able. So I thought, well, if I open MNC Saatchi in South Africa, there's a lot of brand confusion between MNC Saatchi and Saatchi and Saatchi, and I'll unpack that for you. And also with my name being so inextricably linked to the Ogilvy brand, people might look for me back there. So I thought, let's give them a clear billboard of where Mike Abel is working. And so we became MNC Saatchi Able really for those reasons to make it clear. You realize the irony that you had to deal with all this branding stuff while starting a marketing agency, right? Like brand confusion across the board. <laughs> it's very much, it's not the plumber's taps. It's not like you could have done anything different, but it's a little bit funny. <laughs> no, you're, uh, I think it's a great observation. And, and as you correctly said up front, uh, that is the difficulty when you put your name on the door or have uh, an eponymous uh, agency so or brand. So why are we MNC Saatchi? Well, the Saatchi brothers, who are Iraqi by um, background and history, the name Saatchi is actually Farsi uh, for watchmaker. So if you're around the Middle East, you'll see lots of Saatchis, but you'll go into that shop not for advertising, but to buy a timepiece. And so Morris and Charles Saatchi started the company around about 50 years ago. Uh, Saatchi and Saatchi, they did a deal, we're going to be talking about deals later, they did a deal with a private equity firm to uh, expand globally and that deal um, didn't work out for them and so uh, they decided ultimately in a boardroom putch really, maybe less them deciding and more the investors deciding but they demoted Morris Saatchi of Saatchi and Saatchi from being executive chairman of the group uh, to being the MD of the company and it didn't work well for him and Morris said you know that it's not what I want to do and he walked out and a whole lot of the co-founders of Saatchi and Saatchi followed him and so they started in 1995 M&C Saatchi Morris and Charles Saatchi so I suppose if you've got the most recognized name in advertising in the world you wouldn't want to give that up but uh, the publicist group today owns Saatchi and Saatchi so although we share a similar surname and certainly historic DNA. We're entirely different companies today, but there is some brand confusion. And sometimes even our clients of MNC Saatchi Able call us Saatchi and Saatchi. Uh, and I never correct them. I mean, if they've come to the wrong company, well, c'est la vie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I suppose it gave you a good head start with, with running your own shop, I suppose, in South Africa to be able to piggyback off a brand like that, right? I mean, do you think it would have been as successful if it was just Abel or if you'd somehow found someone with the surname Willing? You know, that might have worked quite well. Uh, but, you know, piggybacking off the Saatchi brand works well, I would think. Well, I think it worked well in our case as opposed to the previous instance that they were here uh, because Saatchi gave us investment uh, to start the company. A modest investment, I might add, but they did. I also already knew the global company uh, from having run the Australia group, so I had great relationships around the world. But I think that it was more of an endorser brand than a purchase brand. So I think people came to us because of me and my partners, and Abel in my instance doesn't represent Mike Abel, it re represents the local partnership really. 
Um, and uh, a lot of my partners, people like Jacques Berger, who's the group CEO, have also been very successful and are well known in the South African ad industry. Naomi Shikha, Chief Creative Officer. So it basically is the local flavor of a global brand, if, if you like. And I think what people like about the Saatchi versus Saatchi and Abel is just the global perspective and that it's a global network. And they're much more partners of ours than anything else. You know, it's 51% uh, uh, of our companies locally owned, 49% global. Um, so we are a majority locally owned company. Um, and I think that's really where the Saatchi brand comes into it. I don't think anyone comes to us specifically because we are Saatchi within the South African environment because all of our business is 100% local. Uh, we wash our own face in our own market. It's not globally aligned business at all. Absolutely. I think it proves the power of partnerships, if nothing else. And, you know, for entrepreneurs, the right partnership can be the best thing you ever do. And, of course, the wrong partnership can, you know, the other side of the coin is can be the absolute worst thing that you ever do. But if you get it right, like this is the power of it, you know, it really accelerates you. And I guess that's always the test is maybe that's a question, actually. What made you do it? You know, what did you look for in terms of saying, OK, this is the right partner, apart from the obvious opportunity, you know, to come home and your wife being very keen on that. And obviously you were working with them already. I mean, all of that is valid. But you must have also looked at this and said, OK, these are the right people to do this with. You know, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur in making that assessment? Well, I think it's a, it's a really good question, Ghost, because I did have the means to start uh, Mike Abel and Friends or Willing and Abel or whatever else we could have called the company. What I wanted to do with Saatchi was to find partners where I had, I guess, access to global intelligence, uh, to a global network in terms of bouncing around ideas, sharing stuff, learning from different markets. Um, and then I've asked myself some very simple questions about any partnership, whether it's with a client, whether it's employing someone, whether it's the nature of a merger or something is, do I know them? Do I like them? And do I trust them? Before I even get to, do they have the requisite skills that I need? Because I think no like and trust is really important. And so I don't think you should ever do business with people in terms of a partnership or a startup or private equity or venture capital or anything if it's predatory or if it's based purely on short-term financial need uh, unless it's between that and uh, going out of business or not starting off you know what i mean and then the other thing that i always look at is in terms of any business deal i always say i'd rather have a small part of something extraordinary than a large part of something ordinary and I felt that I could have had a large part of something ordinary, but that wasn't my ambition. And my ambition was also to land big blue chip global brands, albeit from here. So um, I'm not sure that a Heineken, for example, who was our first major account, would have taken a bet on us as an 18 month old company if we weren't part of a global network. You know, so what you wanted to do was to dial down the risk of going with a, with a startup. You know, there's another wonderful point coming through there. And it's something that I think people struggle with when they leave corporate and they go and do something entrepreneurial or new is they kind of assume, you know, I've got tons of experience. Everyone knows me. They'll hire me straight away. But that's not real life, is it? You know, you've got to go and build a track record somewhere else, even if it's as a new brand. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world because you're the same person who had all that experience all these years and i see it all the time with people going into i don't know you know corporate finance advisory or starting their own law firm or whatever it is you know they leave the big brand they go out on their own and they think great everyone will follow me and suddenly the the work will just rain down on me 
That is not how it works, is it? It's not how it works at all, and it was a very hard lesson to discover. I didn't rely, funnily enough, on landing any business in South Africa based on my relationships from when I was uh, running Ogilvy, uh, because I knew that those were relationships that existed way beyond me. Even though I had great relationships with those companies for many years. So I needed enough money that I had sufficient runway uh, for liftoff. And I think that a lot of people start their businesses thinking the business will come quickly, it'll come easily, I'm well known. And even if people want to move business to you, your timelines as a startup are very different to the timelines of a client who's looking for an ad agency. In fact, they don't uh, intersect at any point in time. Uh, so you do need to, uh, you know, cash flow is blood flow, and you need to make sure that you've got enough cash flow no matter how long it takes to land that. So my orientation was also not to build a, a landing strip uh, to land Papa Cubs. I wanted to build an international airport to land A380s. So my intention was always to land big blue chip business, and that takes longer to land than it does uh, lots of little accounts. So for the first 18 months, we really did lots of project work just to keep ticking over, to keep the people busy, to keep them active. And I used to phone clients of mine that had moved on to other companies. And I'd say, hi, it's Mike here. How are you doing? I've started my own ad agency, blah, blah, blah. And this was exactly the response, Ghost, that you've alluded to, where I heard verbatim, Mike, we know that you are good, but how good is your company? And I used to say, but a company is an inanimate object. A company is only as good as the people that work in it. And if I've always run a great company and hired good talent, then trust me, rely on me that it's going to be a great agency. And the answer would be, well, let's see how you go. And if it goes really well, then let's talk in a year or so. And I used to say to them, but what happens if everybody says that to me? So fortunately, some people, uh, you know, took it. Then they'll talk to you when you're back at Ogilvy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. And, uh, and so that was a big shock. It was also a big shock that a lot of people that I had helped enormously uh, in their careers and that they had kind of grown up on the client side or on the agency side and gone into, they didn't come to me. They didn't help me. They didn't reciprocate. All of my clients came from people initially that I'd never worked with before in the beginning. The only exception was uh, Kim Reed from takealot.com group, who used to be my client at Ogilvy when uh, he was the CEO of MWeb. And when he started or acquired Take-Two, which became Take-A-Lot, he said to me, you know, Mike, you're the only guy that I trust to do this for me. And, you know, we've had an amazing business partnership and friendship. But other than Kim, um, all of it, and those clients did come later, funnily enough. You know, MWeb came after about two years, had a great relationship with Carolyn Holgate uh, from the Ogilvy days. And then, you know, they were missing what they knew we could bring. But initially, it didn't come at all. It's so interesting. I mean, I want to touch on a couple of points there. But the one thing I always say to entrepreneurs or or just warn people about is, you know, when you're going to go off and start that business. So if you have some kind of investment and it gives you runway, that is ideal. Because then from day one, you can say, okay, I'm going to focus on what I want to build. And, you know, if it doesn't make money for the first six months, that's kind of part of the plan. There are very, very few people who have that luxury. And so when you're not going to go build a business with funding from somewhere else, or you don't necessarily have a huge runway, you've got to accept that as much as the right advice is always to focus on what you should be doing, sometimes you also have to take the quick singles. It's a little bit like a cricket game, uh, you know, hopefully not too much like the Proteas, because that's not a great reference at the moment. But it is a little bit like that. You know, you can hit the boundaries, and when you hit them, that's great. 
But if you don't take the singles, you are definitely, definitely going to lose. So if you don't have funding, you have to take the singles, build that innings, and actually get to the point at the end where you look back and go, sure, we have 300 runs on the board. How did that happen? Well, it didn't happen by hitting some flashy sixes. It happened by just keeping the clock ticking over. And I think a lot of people, they almost take the advice of focusing on one thing to heart too early. Down the line, if you want to build a business of value, yes, you definitely have to be good at one thing or two things, and you have to be able to clearly articulate that strategy. And that's a big driver of a business valuation. But in the early days, no one cares about the valuation you'll have in five years if you can't make payroll. I mean, that's the reality. No, that's absolutely right. And I think that people don't give enough thought to it. You know, most businesses, as you know, when you look into it, if they didn't have sufficient runway, would have gone bankrupt. Um, and you look at, I think a great example is Amazon. You know, how uh, Jeff Bezos battled in the, in, in the early days until he became, well, the second richest man in the world, I guess, depending on whatever the Tesla valuation is on the day, whether he's the richest or second richest. But yes, at what point does that thing suddenly, and you've got to know what you're trying to build. You know, often equated to uh, cathedrals. You know, Gaudi's been dead for many years, but they're still building the Sagrada de Familia in uh, in Barcelona, and uh, and that's the thing. You know, it's a long-term goal to build an amazing business, and uh, and you never know. Obviously, with market conditions and the industry and opportunity, a whole lot of stuff, ghost as you know, is going to come to you that you don't predict or don't see. So you know the basics of what you're building. But your client base will emerge organically based on what's happening out there, as opposed to having a prediction of how that's going to manifest. 100%. So I do definitely want to tap into your marketing brain. It would be a, a travesty not to. And the one thing I do want to speak about is the difference between B2C and B2B, just business models and marketing. And it's you've actually given me the perfect in there because you've mentioned already you, know, you Mike Abel, walk into the room and go, I've started this business. And they go, that's great. Tell us about your business, not about you, Mike, you know, but I was Mike at Ogilvy. Yes, but we don't care. So there's a lot of lessons in there, I think, about building a brand and especially, and listen, I'm dead keen to learn from you on this, but I can only, so if I say something and I'm completely off the mark, I'd love to know that. But I mean, my sense of it is B2C is more like sort of building the funnel, people fall through it, they like your product or they don't. And for people listening to this, if you don't know these terms, B2C means you're selling straight to end user consumers, individuals essentially. You know, you're selling them a product on take a lot. I'll use the Kim Reed example. But B2B means you're selling to another business, you're selling to Heineken. You know, you're trying to convince Heineken that you should be their account manager for all of their advertising. And, and those are two completely different things, right? So I'm actually gonna let you explain it because goodness knows you'll do a much better job of it than me. What are those key differences between B2C, B2B marketing, and how should business owners think about this? It's interesting because there are growing intersections really uh, in terms of tools, but I think you've articulated it uh, pretty well at, at a high level. So I think that if you are a company and a brand, that is trying to sell directly to customers out there or uh, get customers to buy your brand via retailer or uh, online or whatever it might be, there's going to be a very different marketing approach to if you are going to try and sell your business and your services to another business in terms of B2B. What do they have in common? Well, in both instances, you're dealing with people. Um, so that's a big thing. There will always be I guess, what is your relevance to that company? So what is that company's needs? 
so if I'm talking to, as you say, Kim Reed, and he's assessing who he wants to appoint as an ad agency or marketing partner for uh, takealot.com, he's going to have very different needs, entirely different needs to a customer of takealot.com. And it's going to be driven by value. Uh, he's going to be looking to say, am I going to get the right advice from these people? Am I going to get the right products? Am I going to get the right services? Am I going to get the right pricing? Am I going to get the right level of service and delivery from this organization? That was, that's not questions that would be asked in a B2C relationship at all, you know, um, because that is much more of a transactional relationship. So the first relationship, the B2B relationship, is largely a rational decision. Those would be the motivations to say, does it all stack up? Does it all make sense? And will I be able to tick all of the boxes in terms of what I need to deliver over here? Whereas a B2C relationship, brands and customers, is much more an emotional relationship. Why am I going to choose that? Because the buying cycle is much shorter for a B2C relationship. It's much longer for B2B. Um, in terms of the risk of making the wrong decision. You know, you're not choosing a can of baked beans off the shelf. You're talking about much greater transactional value. And uh, the risk of, of, of choosing the wrong uh, service provider, whatever, is, uh, is, is much higher uh, if you get it wrong. So advertising is really, in terms of B2C, it's brand, it's emotional-based, um, pricing doesn't pay the primary role, it pays a key role, but uh, you know people like to, do, to choose brands that they prefer, brands that have made them laugh or brands that have made them cry or brands that have got a good, I guess, uh, purpose behind them. And we'll talk about purpose-based marketing. I think that's very important for this conversation, seeing as it seems to be consuming a lot of conversation and people seem to be losing billions of dollars worth of value by making the wrong decisions in those areas. Um, so where they are intersecting more ghost today is, you know, in the olden days, we would have said that B2B is like a rifle and B2C is like a shotgun. But where you can now start applying a rifle-like approach with B2C is historically it's been, I guess, through loyalty marketing, through customer relationship management, whatever. But data is becoming far more accessible. And I think that AI is going to speed that up dramatically and is already in many, many instances. And so what you'll be able to do through understanding data uh, far better of your clients and mining it far better is through technology today and through direct marketing and through customer relationship marketing is understand those motivations more clearly and to do mass personalization. So I think that we are going to be seeing a whole lot more of a B2B approach, if you like, but with an emotional thread woven into it in terms of B2C. And so what you're going to do is get a much higher level of effectiveness from that advertising. You know, there's that classic saying of in the B2C environment of, I know 50% of my advertising works, I just don't know which 50%. And, uh, and you're going to start knowing which 50% far more, you know, and it won't be 50%, it'll be 80% of my advertising works. The interesting thing about digital marketing, and we're going to talk a little bit about COVID, I imagine, at some point in this conversation, how the world has or hasn't changed through that. But from a digital marketing perspective, we do know that 80% of digital marketing spend does not resonate with customers. So 20% of it at most is effective. 
Now that's a terrifying uh, concept for a marketing department and for a CFO or CEO looking at their marketing investment, which is usually an enormous amount and saying, but why is it so ineffective? We're spending so much money. And I think people are concerning themselves with the wrong metrics in terms of how they look at it. So the other day I had a client saying to me, you know, we've just done this campaign online. Uh, the agency didn't do it for them. They did it themselves. And it's been massively successful and blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, give me access to the dashboard. Let me go and have a look at why it's been so successful so that I can learn. It's a four-minute piece of content, Ghost. And the average amount of viewing of that four-minute piece of content is somewhere between two to ten seconds. And they consider it successful because they've had X amount of million views. It's rubbish. It's not successful at all. Because if I watch the first two to ten seconds, they haven't engaged the customer. The selling message hasn't come through. They haven't even got to the branding moment. They haven't got the click-through rates in terms of purchase. So if they go in and they do a presentation to the CFO of the company or the CEO and they say, you know, we've got five million views of this video. That's unbelievable. The most we've ever got is 250,000 views. Unless you look beneath the, the surface, you know, uh, you're not going to actually realize that it's actual, actually rubbish. Um, and as Jacques Berger, my group CEO of uh, the MNC Sarchi group of companies here, loves to say, you know, five out of six people find Russian roulette a fun sport. And, uh, you know, it's that kind of a statistic that unless you look beneath it, you're not going to understand the exact dynamic. I'll, I'll give you another. I'll, oh, that's brilliant. I'll give you another fun stat. So one of my favorite, favorite quotes is uh, the danger of averages. And it basically says if one of your legs is on fire and the other one is in a bucket of ice and frozen, on average, you're okay. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. it's, it's a good one. You know, I'll it's exactly it. that. It's exactly that concept, ultimately. But yeah, I mean, again, there's a ton to unpack here. But the one thing I just wanted to highlight that people may not have necessarily fully appreciated is how much longer the sales cycle is for B2B. You know, it really is. And that's why a B2B business can be so valuable. The, the best consumer brands in the world definitely trade at big values. And I know I'm bringing a bit of a finance overlay here, but a B2B business that has really good entrenched relationships, that is a proper moat. It really is because it is incredibly difficult to wake up in the morning and actually build that, you know, and it's, it's your point around key people leaving an organization. They can't just go and replicate it overnight. That's why Goldman Sachs has an advisory brand in the US that is so strong. Any of their individual bankers can do that work. But none of their individual bankers can go out and start Goldman Sachs tomorrow. The thing is an institution. And once you reach that institutional status, you know, then you've created something of real value. So I guess the question is, how do you get to that point? Is it a combination of thought leadership plus great delivery over years and years? You know, is it, is it very much a game of just hammering away at it? What is the story there in terms of building a brand like that? I think the first thing is... Well, let me, let me say that the observations you've made are all very, very valid in terms of trust, consistency, understanding deeply. And I think that that's, that is the business. I think that is where procurement departments, I think, are getting businesses into a lot of trouble because, uh, you know, people's time in companies is far shorter today than it used to be, tragically. I don't think that's the way you build a career. You know, in my 35-year career, I've worked for one company for 15 years and the other one for 15 years so far and, uh, and counting. And that's how I think you get uh, to give maximum value to your people and to your, and to your clients, is understanding deeply. 
And what happens with procurement departments today is that after two years or three years, there's a mandatory pitch for new suppliers. So by the time you understand that business intimately is the very time that you actually change who the supplier is going to be. That's the most counterintuitive thing that you can actually get is undervaluing the power of relationships in terms of knowledge, in terms of intuition, in terms of understanding the industry, the competitor environment, the innovations, blah, blah, blah. And so um, I think that people do, I mean, I think the average CEO tenure today, I stand to correction, but is around two and a half to three years. You know, by the time that CEO understands it and they're going to start off coming in and changing all of the peripheral rubbish, you know, they might change the branding, they might change the decor, they might change the whatever. But in terms of being able to understand the business, implement a new growth strategy, and then to start actually testing it, seeing it, evolving it, that takes years to get that right. So I definitely think that time and experience is undervalued today. Uh, and that is what I prize most highly. I mean, if I look at the partners in my company uh, that I started the company with and brought across or that I've worked with, I think the shortest partnership is 10 years. Most of them are 20 years plus. And that's because of the value that I see in kind of the muscle memory, the corporate knowledge, the working with those companies. I mean, if I look at our relationship with a Heineken, who understand that, for example, we worked with that organization for over a decade. We worked with MWeb for over a decade. We worked with Take-A-Lot for over a decade because they know that we know their business and they know that getting somebody else involved in their business will take a huge amount of time, money, effort and risk. Will they get it right? You know, and as that old adage goes that we all grow up, grew up with, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think most people aren't interested in that. They just want change. Yeah, time in the seat, eh? that's the key. And you can't rush that. You can do all the best marketing in the world. You can't rush it. But if you don't do all the best marketing in the world, you won't get there. So that's the cruelty of this process. You know, if it was easy to build a very valuable business in 18 months, well, guess what? You know, everyone would have a very valuable business. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. From my experience in advising entrepreneurs who are selling, especially bigger businesses, often they've been building it for 20 years. That, that's very normal. That is a very, very normal story, is a 20-year journey, and it's finally ready for sale in some format or another. It takes time, and, and it's about getting everything right along the way. So you know, my favorite quote in the entire world is, greatness is a lot of small things done well. And it is that. It's, it's, not, one, it's not one genius thing that you did. Sometimes it is, but it's unlikely. Normally, it's just a hell of a lot of small things done to a very high standard, and it adds up, and marketing is included in that. So the challenge for entrepreneurs, I think, and I see it on the other side, obviously, with Ghostmail, because I'm on the receiving end of some of that advertising and branding spend. Sometimes they think, you know, oh, I'm going to put this in, you know, this media or, or whatever, and I'm going to see this incredible result. You know, my phone is not going to stop ringing. <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, it's it's different touch points. I mean, that's another thing that I, I want to, well, touch on with you. People talk about how you need multiple touch points with someone before you kind of get a sale across the line. I mean, that's the sort of folklore that makes its way to non-marketing people like me. You know, so you might be interested to know what kind of makes it out of your profession and trickles down. But is that is that true? I mean, is that something that's been your experience? Is that a common piece of advice you give to clients that you need a certain number of touch points typically to affect 
an outcome that you want? I don't think that one can generalize to that extent uh, because I think that if somebody sees a magnificent television commercial and when I say television commercial, whether you're watching it on your iPad or your mobile phone or whether you're watching it via YouTube or whether it's a push notification or however it arrives, uh, an audiovisual piece of of, uh, emotional can move you without you having to then hear the radio ad, see the press ad, get a direct mail or whatever. But the way I look at it, um, Ghost, is if you obsess about the customer, you can intersect the brand perfectly into their life at any time. If you obsess about the brand, it's very easy to lose the customer. So I like to be entirely customer focused and the company likes to focus obsessively about the customer because then we can intersect the brand, which might be one piece of communication or it might be multiple pieces of communication. So I think that you've got to understand what are you trying to sell? What is the complexity of the sale? You know, I worked with a brilliant man for many years called Robin Putter. Uh, Unfortunately, he passed away about 13 years ago. He was the global creative director of WPP. And he used to say great advertising is about making the strange familiar or making the familiar strange. So what he means by that is if you have an unknown brand or business, make it familiar. But if you have a well-known brand and business, make it strange because then people will reappraise it. They'll think about it differently. So that's why it's so important. You know, you see a whole lot of these iconic South African brands, you know, that are now and been delisted from the shelves. And I think that they haven't been able to be to retain their relevance in customers' lives. They've just thought, well, we hear you know, we're a dominant brand and we're going to keep dominating. Um, and then a new market entrant comes in and is fascinating and interesting. You look at Prime, uh, that drink and the way South Africa was all queuing for Prime. Now, those people that queued for Prime, they'd never seen a Prime TV commercial or heard a Prime radio ad. They knew who Logan Paul was. They'd watched the videos. They'd watched the content online. Uh, and that's what drove the demand. You know, uh, it had nothing to do with traditional advertising at all within a local, uh, you know, base. Uber, uh, cars. I won't give Uber Eats a, a punt on this because you should only be ordering from Mr. D, who are my clients and far better. <laughs> but a shameless punt there. Uh, but lest we be confused. But whoever hired Uber, um, they'd never seen an Uber ad. They knew what the efficacy was of the brand. They had heard enough and read enough to know that if I download Uber onto my phone, I can get a car whenever I want. And so that's how it worked. Um, so I don't think that one must draw any conclusions about traditional approaches because, you know, there was a great saying many years ago, people build brands the way a bird builds nests with the sticks and straws they chance upon. And I think there are many different interactions with brands that help those brands you know, uh, evolve. um, And if you keep the customer in mind, you'll always have a relevant brand. You lose the customer, you're going to have an irrelevant brand. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially the Uber point, because I think actually the Uber brand has lost a lot of value in the last year. If I just look on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, and people complaining and my own experience, you're right. There was a time in this world where you ordered an Uber and the car was there two minutes later and they never refused the trip. I cannot tell you how many posts I've seen about people stranded at the airport. They can't get a trip. There's no drivers. And then it wouldn't make a difference if Uber had the best marketing campaign on the planet for the last 12 months. No one would care because the efficacy of the brand has fallen away. So it's almost like your operations are also your marketing. 
actually. I mean, that's very much been the, you know, I don't want to mention too many brands because I don't know if you potentially represent competitors and that wouldn't be fair. But, you know, there's a specific retailer, you know, that has a lot of scooters and they do a very good job of arriving on time and when they say they will. And that's all they need to do, really. And then they are their own billboard. You know, that, that's really what it comes down to. And I, I, like, I like the concept of all these different touch points. It's not like a set rule. You know, it's just the number of engagements you're having with your audience. Uh, Mike, I'm conscious of time. There's one other topic. And, and there were a few things I wanted to cover, but and we weaved a lot of them into the conversation. But the one thing I definitely still want to ask is, you know, in the aftermath of the pandemic, and you kind of touched on that earlier, there was a time when the whole world seemed to just dive into digital marketing. It was suddenly just everything was digital, digital, digital. You know, radios were struggling. It was chaos. Would you say that the world needs this entire spectrum of different media and why? So should brands be considering a spread across, you know, YouTube, TV, radio, magazines? Do they still have a bit of a place in this world? Uh, I'm just keen to get your views on all these different media formats. How do you advise clients on how to understand the huge opportunity set and then to pick their battles? I think that where COVID did disrupt the world or fast track everything was obviously in terms of online and digital engagement. And it's not like that wasn't there before, but I think it became much more of a thing, if I can put it that way, in terms of a go-to place. What I want to say around that is people are motivated by what is relevant and what is resonant. And I think that you've got to look at the media channel along those uh, lines because relevance in and of itself is not important if you don't have resonance that goes with it. And resonance comes from the message, you know, what it says, what it does, how it motivates you, how you get to think differently about whatever it is that the business or the brand is trying to sell. So I think that what people did jump to was much more of an initial uh, transactional behavior is emotion. And it's even regarding coming back to warm bodies in the office and the workplace is we can do all of this stuff online. No, you can't. People are emotional beings. People are social creatures. People like interaction with one another. People like engagement. So what a sporting event can do in terms of sponsorship and experiential marketing might be far greater than you can do with a TV ad or a radio ad because you're bonding people around your brand. You know, I'm not sure how much leverage HSBC gets around sevens around the world versus what their billboards at the airport might do. But I imagine seeing that brand bring you sevens around the world must work really hard for, you, for them, you know. And so I think we've got to look at what the brand is, what the opportunity is, who the customers are, because there won't also be a homogenous level of customer. There'll be multiple brands, there'll be multiple offers, there'll be multiple target segments and audiences. So it's very scientific. I think for people that are removed from what we do here, it looks quite simple, um, but it's not. Uh, it is very scientific. And, they, you know, the age old thing about, you know, is it art and is it science? It's both. But without the art, it's not going to resonate. You know, without the art, it's not going to eke its way into the DNA and, uh, you know, kind of find a, a place in your brain where the other brands can't land. So I definitely don't think that uh, digital is the panacea. It's a delivery mechanism. It's a data mechanism. It's a great feedback mechanism. But is it going to build great brands? Um, well, uh, I don't think so. 
Um, great brands will be built by the way they manage to capture the imagination of customers. Fantastic. And then last question, bit of a left field one, maybe slightly unfair, but what has been your favorite ever campaign that you've done for a client? What is the one where you just look at it and go, that was amazing? You know, it's funny uh, because for many, many years, for 15 years of my life, I was uh, very involved with the VW brand. And when I started working on the business in 1993, I think they had about 8% market share in South Africa. And when I finished working on the brand in uh, uh, 2008, they had 20, 22% market share. Uh, so I'm most proud about, I guess, that market share growth, which was more testimony. But I used to love always hearing about the ads, uh, you know, from other people to say, oh, God, I love that ad where the father and the son go on that drive in that Touareg. And, uh, you know, there's that song by Arno Carstens, uh, you know, and blah, blah. And I've always enjoyed the, you know, that kind of dinner table conversation that is automatically fed back to me. And so... I guess one of those things is Nando's. You know, we've had the Nando's business for going on nine years now, eight and a bit years, and uh, and people always love to talk about the Nando's ads. You know, and and I love that. I love that feedback that that we get to say, oh, you know, I just saw this amazing thing, or oh, it really made me smile. Or the other day, you know, when Derek Watts passed, and uh, they put out. Or, you know, we, we created with them this thing, which is, you know, to the man who grilled better than we could, you know, it's powerful stuff. It's a brand showing up at a moment where the country is feeling pain and paying tribute to that person. I think that that is the thing about brands is they can be really, really powerful and really relevant, you know. And so, you know, whether I look at, you know, kind of the feedback that I get on the work that we might be doing with Standard Bank amongst the youth, and then you start seeing that product, you know, being taken up and, and moving. Those are the things that, that give me pride is what I see out in the marketplace. For me, it's completely useless, Ghost, to look at the ad and to say that's a brilliant piece of communication because unless it's working in the marketplace, all I'm getting is a nice warm feeling. I'm fooling myself. I have to get that customer feedback. And so I obsess about it. So when work breaks, I am on social media that night looking at all of the comments and what's coming through and seeing what level of traction there is. And, you know, one of the closing points I want to make, you know, a few twice or three times in this meeting, you've said X, uh, a podcast rather, you've said X or Twitter, whatever you call it. Now, that's going to be one of the most disastrous branding things I've ever seen. You're taking a multi, multi-billion dollar brand that has got huge brand equity that is owned by customers, not by Elon Musk. He might own it or the stock market or whatever thing might own Twitter in terms of the transaction, but you don't own the brand. The customer always owns the brand. And I think that, fine, if you want to get rid of Twitter, get rid of Twitter, rather sell it on, rather approach somebody like yourself to sell that brand for a couple of billion dollars and then change the name for somebody else because that brand, Twitter, has got multi-billion dollar value, you know. But if you've got the hubris to, to turf it and you're going to call it X, well, I know that I used to tweet, do I now X? You know, what does X actually stand for? Is it extra is it experience is it example is it you know what i mean so how have you brought that brand x to life because right now you might love the brand x because you are elon musk and you're the richest man in the world but i don't think us as customers know what x stands for or what to do with x 
Um, so I think that from a branding point of view, it's a masterclass. It's a masterclass in idiocy. I, I could not agree with you more. It absolutely, absolutely is. I was on a podcast with uh, Nika Katzka from Satrix the other day, and we were joking about this exact point. So I said to him, I, I can't claim it. I'd seen it elsewhere on, well, X. I just wish I could remember who it was. And someone said, it's an X say <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> instead of a tweet. Yeah, exactly. That's about the best option, I think, is an X say. Yeah, uh, yeah. But Mike, on a serious note, I mean, I didn't realize the Nando's account is yours. I mean, that that's a phenomenal story in and of itself. Everyone knows the Nando's branding, you know, and the product is great. And, and, and maybe that's my closing point is that brilliant Nando's branding without a really enjoyable half chicken and chips would also not really work. And the great half chicken and chips without the branding might just do okay. But if you combine the two... And maybe that's the lesson I want to leave founders from this excellent conversation with you, which I've really enjoyed is, you know, your marketing is actually everything you do. I don't think it's just the advert you placed last month and sat back and said, okay, the phone's going to start ringing. You know, that's not marketing. It's every opportunity that you have to touch the customer. And the other thing that I'm definitely going to take forward is, you know, the concept of your customer owns the brand, not you. I think that is a really, really powerful way to think. It, it really is. And it stops stupidity like what musk has done with twitter it stops people using vanity metrics and it stops you doing the warm and fuzzy of wow what i did here was really clever yes but did it achieve anything no well then it wasn't very clever was it so there's been some some really cool insights and i thank you for that spot on spot on i think you've encapsulated it perfectly there and many years ago almost when i started my career i read the definition of a brand and i've always loved it and the definition of a brand is how customers feel about a product and it's as simple as that and i think that's what you've articulated that unless the product delivers functionally unless that piece of chicken peri peri is delicious unless the chips are delicious you don't have a great product uh, unless you capture their imagination through the brand and make them feel something well all you've got is a product you don't have a brand uh, and so through combining those two, as you say, uh, that's how you're going to have uh, success in the marketplace. Fantastic. Last question for those listening to this podcast, and they want to reach out to you and they potentially want to work with you. I mean, the accounts you've referenced are pretty big corporate accounts. I'm guessing that's the strategy. But what are the sort of minimum size businesses that you, you guys actually work with for those who want to reach out? Well, we've got a number of businesses in uh, the MNC Saatchi South Africa group. So you've got MNC Saatchi Able in Cape Town and Johannesburg, who are the through the line advertising agencies with that do, you know, above the line, below the line brand strategy. We also have a fantastic uh, PR company, one uh, best uh, new PR company in the world called Razor. It's three years old. They take on different size projects as well. So MNC Saatchi Able will traditionally go for you know, big blue chip clients or, or businesses that want to make an impact, you know. So we'll start with them small if they've got big dreams. So when Take Two came to us and we rebranded at takealot.com with them and grew it into, you know, I guess, you know, this fantastic e-commerce player that it is, they were a very small client initially. So as long as there's a land ambition and as long as uh, people want to invest, we've got a media company called Connect that does media specifically. We've got a sports marketing, experiential marketing company called Levergy, which is part of the global MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment. So they all have their own clients. Some of them we have clients uh, across all of those companies together. So one client would work with multiple companies in our group. Others, they'll work specifically with one company where they might only want to do experiential marketing with a Levergy or to do PR with a Razor or to be, do media with a Connect. 
So there's no one size fits all ghost in terms of that answer. So I think that people, entrepreneurs who are ambitious and are prepared to invest what is required to grow their business, because we can do many things, but we're not the genie that comes out of Aladdin's bottle. You know, unless you are prepared to spend the required amount of money to do the desired task in terms of gaining that market share, we can't help that person. You know, if you want to build a house of X bedrooms uh, in that neighborhood, you need X amount of money. And, and that's not because you're being mercenary. That's because what you need to invest in in order to do that thing. You know, it's like if you want to bake a cake. Uh, look, no, I know nothing about baking. I don't think my wife will even allow me in the kitchen or she'll probably love me in the kitchen. I won't allow myself in the kitchen probably. But uh, uh, maybe a, a, bake, uh, a cake takes an hour to bake. You can't bake it in half an hour. It won't rise. And that's the thing, you know, there are certain things that you need to be able to invest in and do in order to get the desired result. And we're prepared to, well, we love working with those types of clients. Yep, fantastic. Mike, on a personal note, I've really, really enjoyed this podcast. Thank you. Uh, I've taken I've taken a lot from this. So thank you so much for making the time. You've given us almost an hour of your time. I'm going to call it there. Uh, for those who want to follow you, I know you're very active on Twitter, X, what ifs. Uh, I'm assuming you're on LinkedIn as well and people can find you there. I am. I certainly am. And Facebook and Insta and all those channels. All right, fantastic. Mike, thank you so very much for your time and uh, look forward to engaging with you online. Also really love the chat. Thank you for inviting me. Ciao.